This is the Blaze Radio On Demand. You're listening to The Church Boys Free Fall Q&A. It's Billy Hollowell here with The Church Boys, and I have attorney Dean Strang on the phone. How are you doing today? I'm fine, thank you. So you have you have made the rounds in the last few days um, doing interviews. Uh, you are obviously Stephen Avery's attorney, one of his attorneys, <clears throat> and a subject in the documentary series Making a Murderer. Let me just ask you, I guess the place to start for me, because I'm always fascinated when these things um, blow up the way that, that this has, and there's so much attention. Are you surprised by the public reaction to the documentary? Yes. And, um, I, I was surprised both by the volume of it and the quality of it. Um, you know, you, I, and I think anybody would have to be surprised. You don't know when, um, you know, when a film is going to succeed wildly or, or flop badly or, or somewhere in the middle. Um, that's, I guess, you know, that's a guess for everybody and that's how millions are made and lost in that industry. Um, but this one certainly seems to have succeeded in the sense of, of drawing worldwide and, and deep viewership. Um, and then the, the reaction to it um, has, has seemed to me intense, yeah. um, at least from, from my remote perch. No, it's it's very intense. I mean, it's funny. You had the petitions calling for Obama to step in, which he obviously can't step in and and issue a pardon because these were state crimes and not federal. Um, But you, I mean, the reaction has just been massive. And let me ask you, I mean, you've dealt with a lot of cases as an attorney. And, you know, I want to talk to you a little bit more about the documentary itself. But what what is different about Stephen Avery's case from the others that you've dealt with when you sort of look back at it and you look at your overall career, what differentiates it for you? At the most specific level, um, you know, Stephen Avery's experience is really unusual to the point of being almost unique in in terms of being someone who was imprisoned 18 years for a crime that he clearly did not commit, was exonerated, and hardly more than two years later finds himself again charged uh, with a crime this time even more serious uh, than the earlier crime that that's just obviously unusual and unfortunate and unhappy um, all the way around um, and beyond that the um, the scope of the public interest uh, at least as measured by media attention at the time was great. That's certainly not unique, um, but you know it, it's um, atypical of cases in the criminal justice system. Only a tiny, tiny sliver of a fraction of, of cases in our criminal justice system ever generate any attention outside the family of the victim, or if there is one, uh, and the family of the accused. Yeah, and and obviously when you have a case like this, there was a lot of media attention then, and and we spoke about the media attention you're getting now. Um, What was it that led you, because obviously this documentary series, which is 10 hours in length, 10-part series, 
it took a long time to put it together. What was it for you in the beginning of sort of jumping into that 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 led you to say, you know what, I I think we should be a part of this. I think this is a good thing for us to do. I mean, what what take me a little bit through that decision to to take part in making a murderer. It it was the client was the impetus. It was Stephen Avery himself. Um, Jerry Budin and I weren't retained to represent him until more than three months, in fact, close to four months after uh, Stephen Avery was charged with this murder. By that time, the filmmakers had approached him repeatedly and approached his family and had established some level of trust with um, Mr. Avery and his family. So when Jerry Budin and I were retained and, and stepped into the case for the first time, um, Stephen and his family, for that matter, both uh, hoped that we would cooperate with the filmmakers. Um, I don't know that that was wise on, on the client's <laughs> part or his family's part, but I'm just telling you honestly, at that point, um, the filmmakers had won some level of trust with Mr. Avery and his family, so they hoped that we would cooperate. Jerry and I didn't jump in. Um, Jerry and I were very leery or wary of um, having filmmakers, you know, in in the vicinity, um, or let alone talking with them or, or, you know, discussing the case with them. There were attorney-client issues, that, you know, about which we have to be concerned and had to be concerned at the time, um, work product issues, um, and, and just, you know, and just distraction issues. Would, would this prove to be a distraction right, uh, when right. you're handling a case that carries an automatic life sentence if you lose? So it was a very gradual process um, initiated by the client, and we respected that. Um, and um, the, you know, the willingness to, to work with the filmmakers, as I say, proceeded very gradually and only as they demonstrated themselves to be very intelligent, thoughtful, um, you know, aware of broader concerns and interested in raising issues that well transcended Stephen Avery or Brendan Dassey's cases. And they also proved themselves trustworthy. Yeah, I mean, the one thing that sticks out to me in, in this whole process is that it's fascinating to sort of see in the documentary and then see through interviews I would imagine there are a lot of people who are represented by attorneys who who lawyers know this person's guilty. They've told them they're guilty or you assume that they're guilty, but your job is to represent them. It it obviously comes across very much so that this is a case that bothers you that has stuck with you and I can't I can't speak for you, but these are the things I I've seen you say about this and that it's something that has deeply disturbed you. Um what I guess, <clears throat> I guess, how common is it for an attorney to, to sort of speak out continuously the way you have so far after the case? And then the second question related to that, um, because of that level of, of sort of being impacted by this, it seems you have, what is the single piece of evidence in this case that, that led you to that conclusion? Well, um, I suppose it's natural. Um, for any human being, including someone who's, uh, you know, a relatively seasoned criminal defense lawyer to, you know, to, to wonder whether someone's innocent or guilty or to form some working hypothesis on that. 
um, you know, if you're if you're in my job, you have to be aware mm-hmm. of that and, and and sort of cabin that and you know and just focus on doing your job, um, uh, which only gets harder if if you really believe your client's innocent um, or you know if you really believe he's guilty. Either either way there's some burdens to that if you mm-hmm. let your personal beliefs interfere with your work. For myself, from the outset, just drawing on my own experience and sense as a criminal defense lawyer, from the outset, um, I've had a, a, a really, um, in some ways, horrible um, sense that Stephen Avery may be innocent, uh, maybe just stone-cold innocent. And I, you know, and I'm still stuck with that. And at at its core, if I'm going to be perfectly honest, just drawing on my own experience, um, a lot of that stems from the fact that I know experientially that people who are intellectually equipped, as Stephen Avery is, uh, people you know, who've had something like the pattern of his life experience, um, they don't withstand the sort of pressure from the police here and pressure from publicity and pressure of having 16 months of their jail conversations taped constantly. They don't withstand that without confessing or making an incriminating statement if in fact they're guilty. So odd as it seems, the fact that Stephen Avery always has stood his ground and he's never suggested in any way that he was guilty is very powerful evidence to me just again I'm speaking out of my own empirical experience it's very powerful evidence that he in fact is not guilty and so I you know I that stuck with me and that as I say in some ways that can interfere isn't quite the right word but can it can distract in doing just the you know the mechanical tasks of lawyering, yeah, um, and meeting your your you know your your legal duty to a client and to the courts. Um, but after a trial, it's still there, and if the trial only reinforces that concern that that the man or woman may be innocent, um, then that's a motive, a reason to continue to speak out, both about his case and about whatever failings or weaknesses I may be able to identify in the system that could lead to an innocent man being charged mistakenly, being convicted mistakenly, and losing mistakenly on appeal. You know, there are things that in the documentary, and obviously the documentary captures a portion of what happened, and it it captures different elements, and obviously there have been critiques of what was left out and, and all that, but you know, when you when you look at that, when I look at that, there are things that shock me just based on the documentary. But you having been there, obviously, and defended Stephen Avery in court on this, was there any specific finding or piece of evidence? I know what's in my mind right now that I don't want to lead the question. That for you is just sort of like a smoking gun in your mind of there's at least reasonable doubt here, and this piece of evidence should prove that. In Stephen Avery's trial, if what we mean by that is, you know, on the evidence that was presented and that the jury and all of a sudden the courtroom actually heard in Stephen Avery's trial, for me, that would be, I think, the fact that the defense in the end had the stronger evidence that 
Ms. Halbach's body was not burned in the open burn pit behind Stephen Avery's trailer, but rather was burned in some enclosed container, which would have generated and allowed more consistent, extremely high heat. And then moved, you know, then the the um, cremated remains moved to and dumped in Stephen Avery's burn pit. I think the defense had the stronger evidence on that, and the state certainly disputed that, <clears throat> including with with testimony. But I I I thought in the end, with a front row seat, that the defense had the stronger um, evidence, more more convincing evidence in that regard. So if then you believe outright that the defense actually proved that the body likely was burned elsewhere and the cremated remains moved to Stephen Avery's burn pit, or if you're just left with a a real significant doubt about that. Either way, once it becomes likely that the remains were moved to his burn pit, then he didn't do this. Because no one who killed this young woman and then went to the trouble of, you know, cremating her crudely would then move the evidence of that toward himself, you know, toward an area over which, you know, he had practical control or was the, you know, was, it was, it was in his backyard, so to speak, not someone else's. Um, You just wouldn't do that. Um, even a dumb criminal wouldn't do that. Um, so that for me was the, was the really powerful indication, um, or the tipping point that, you know, even apart from my own, you know, experiential, uh, background with when do people confess, you know, um, and when do they not, um, that, that was, you know, really, I think what, um, it was very powerful. Was there ever an explanation from the state on the blood vial and why it, the seal was broken and why there was a hole in the top? I mean, that, that discussion, you know, was there ever any sort of, oh, here's an explanation for why that might have happened? Not that I recall. Not that I recall, and, and please bear with me, this was eight and a half years ago, right, but exactly. I don't recall that being explained or at least, you know, explained fully or satisfactorily. Um, have you spoken with Stephen Avery since, I guess, any time in the last you know, couple of years? Have you guys interacted? In especially... Oh, sure. Okay. Oh, sure. Yes. Um, corresponded with him more than anything, but also seen him on occasion in uh, in prison over the years. Jerry and I saw him in December 2015. We went and saw him before the film came out, but we've seen him uh, that recently, and I've probably seen him a total, physically gone and seen him in prison maybe four times, I guess, since um, since his appeal ended. And is the you know is the purpose of that to just you know sort of talk through options? Are there options? I guess what would it take? A what what is what's the purpose of those visits? And B what would it take to get this back in in a court of law to get some sort of exoneration, which I know seems almost impossible at this point. Well, the the purpose of visits like that, and Stephen Avery isn't the only, you know, client um, in prison or former client in prison whom I visit. Um, the purpose is to, you know, just to talk about legal issues when they arise. Um, 
you know, or he may have a question about the evidence or, you know, wants to see some part of the file that maybe I still have or something. Um, that's one part of it. And one part of it is just to assure someone that they're not forgotten. Um, and, uh, you know, you, you recognize they're there and you remember that they are there and, um, you know, and, and want to be available if there's something concretely that you can do. Um, and then in terms of where he goes from here, uh, I think, I think the realistic hope would be an, in the general category of newly discovered evidence. Either, you know, either something somebody saw or heard or a secret they've carried for 10 years, um, or something, you know, new evidence emerging about, for example, jury deliberations and that there's been some news about that in the last few days, or maybe, New scientific evidence or, or, or newly efficient or economic ways to conduct old scientific, um, testing, but to try that now. And, you know, there was a lot of discussion, as I mentioned before, about things that were left out of the documentary and obviously claims of, oh, well, the, you know, the, the filmmakers were definitely on the side of the defense in this case and, and all that. A couple of the things, obviously you've, you've talked with other outlets about this, but I wanted to bring them up. The DNA under the hood of the car, although it seems like there was a dispute over whether the DNA was in the hood of the car or if it was in the trunk, based on some of the interviews I've seen, but that there was this DNA that was not mentioned in, in the film, that it came from sweat. That was the allegation. Um, and that how could how could sweat have been planted? How could that sort of DNA have been planted? How do you, how do you respond to that critique? Let's unpack it a piece at a time. First, I think Ken Kratz simply mis misspoke when he said the trunk, and I think he's acknowledged that. He meant the hood, the front of the car, okay. um, not the rear of the car. Um, there, And then next, there was DNA of Steve, identified as Stephen Avery's, found under the hood of the car, you know, in the area where you would pop the latch to, you know, to lift the hood. Um, no blood was found there. So that suggests strongly that the DNA was not from blood. It was, you know, uh, DNA from epithelial skin cells or, or, you know, the, you know, trace, um, bodily tissue or fluids that, that contained DNA. There was no evidence, zero, that this was sweat. You know, if there's a way to identify sweat that wasn't done here and, or, or was, and it, you know, it wasn't sweat. Sweat was a theory and a hypothesis that the prosecution had that fit in with its broader narrative that Stephen Avery was sweaty, or you know, um, which came out of uh, the, the tale that the, the police sort of pulled from or suggested to Brendan Dassey. But so the sweat was was just an argument. Um, if you want to get down to evidence and and sort of reality, physical reality, Stephen, let's assume that State Crime Lab was right, as I always have, that it was Stephen Avery's DNA on that uh, metal hood surface. Let's call that surface B. That wouldn't ordinarily have his DNA. It's a piece of metal. Um, that means that to get on surface B, it has to be transferred from surface A. Surface A could be Stephen Avery's skin, Okay, that could be surface A, his body. Um, it could be his spittle or, you know, or in theory, 
some other bodily fluid. Here, blood basically was excluded. But DNA on surface A would have had to transfer this to surface B. The problem is, and the reason this was less significant evidence and a reasonable editorial decision to exclude it, you know, to boil 240 hours of trial down to three hours of film, is that surface A, while it could have been Stephen Avery's skin, also could have been anything else that had his DNA on it, his toothbrush, his slippers, his razor, you know, whatever, or specific to this case and the testimony in this case, a division of criminal investigation agent testified that he put on rubber gloves and went in and examined the inside of Teresa Halbach's car, where we know Stephen Avery's blood was. We don't know how it got there, but we know his blood was in her car. And this DCI agent was in there with rubber gloved hands, you know, looking around and touching things. He then acknowledged that he got out of the car, went and popped the hood in exactly the place where Mr. Avery's DNA was found without removing or changing his gloves. Hmm. So it's, a, you know, it's possible that, that, that surface A here was inadvertently, quite inadvertently, the latex glove of a DCI agent's hand. I don't know that. I'm just saying it, it's possible. And the point, the broader point is that a transfer of DNA to surface B could have happened from any surface A that happened to have some tiny trace of Stephen Avery's DNA on it. Now, that's a long explanation. No, no, that's it helpful. Comes down to, it comes down to saying, okay, all right, that could have happened a lot of ways. That's really less powerful evidence for the state. We've got three hours in which to distill 240 hours of testimony or whatever it was, maybe we'll focus on the blood, which, you know, really probably would be harder uh, to transfer inadvertently, you know, or intentionally uh, to the surface inside the car. And so that you see, you know, you see the blood and its DNA, but not, you know, this other um, trace DNA from Stephen Avery. Were you shocked when the seal was broken on the blood container and with the the seemingly punctured hole on the top? I mean, what was your first reaction when you heard that? I I wasn't there. Uh, Jerry was there. I was in court or something somewhere else that day, um, and so Jerry calls me. You see part of this phone yes, call in, yeah. in the film. He calls me and he and he tells me about it. And yes, I don't know about shocked, but but surprised absolutely. And I'll let you go here in a minute because you've been great and you've given me a lot of time. Um, the the key, which obviously, I mean, that was dealt with heavily in the documentary, the car key. Were both Teresa Hallback, the victim, and Stephen Avery's DNA found on that key? No, only Stephen Avery's. This is a key that I guess the state would have you believe she owned for six years and used every day in driving that car for six years. And her DNA was not found. Uh, on that key. Neither were any other keys found on that lanyard. I was just going to say to you, it's strange to me, and somebody else pointed this out, um, another editor who I was talking with, it's strange to me that one single key is on a keychain. Not that that can't happen, but most people tend to travel with their house key, their car key. That was one thing that was curious to me. And maybe there's nothing to it, but it was, but it was interesting. Well, it was, it was curious to me too, then, and, this is something else that was omitted from, 
you know, what the filmmakers showed of the defense evidence and arguments is we talked about that at trial. We pointed that out. And I think we probably argued it. Um, why only one key? You know, she'd have a house key, a work key, maybe, you know, other keys. And this was a lanyard, you know, and a key ring that how many of those are you going to carry around? You know, right, not right. one for each key, probably. If Most people wouldn't. Um, and I also think, and, and here, this is something viewers have pointed out, uh, I think that you can see other keys on that lanyard in the picture of her standing next to her Toyota RAV4 uh, that was entered into evidence at trial and appears in the film. Uh, it looks to me like there's other keys um, on that key ring in that picture. So, you know, this is one of the the nagging mysteries, if you will, or, you know, um, nagging doubts about uh, just one of them about this case. Okay, I'm going to ask you one last question. I'll let you go. And, and it's sort of a loaded question. And you probably, I don't know if you can answer it, but what do you think happened to Teresa Halbach? Because that's the, I mean... Outside of all of this, that's the key question, right? Regardless of how it happened, whether it was Stephen Avery, is there a theory? Um, would you care to speak to that at all? I don't know what happened to Teresa Hallbach. And if you were going to boil down my bottom concern, you know, just boil it down to the residue, my concern in this case is that I fear that the police did answer that question before they knew anything. I fear the police said, I'll bet this was Stephen Avery. And from that point forward, being human beings and making all the you know cognitive errors that human beings think, I, I believe, I fear that the police got anchored to that hunch, that initial hypothesis, and developed a sort of tunnel vision that, you know, quite possibly unconsciously caused them to, to look for or value or, uh, you know, put emphasis on evidence that tended to support that initial hunch and to miss or ignore or discount evidence that would have uh, undermined that initial hunch. I don't want to make the same mistake. I mean, the, the truth is I don't know what happened to Teresa Albach. Well, listen, I appreciate your so time. I, know, I guess I know in the end, but I don't know who did it. I don't know why. I don't, I don't know where. I don't know how. Um, I don't know who did it. Well, listen, I appreciate your time. It's been great, and, and thanks again for coming on today. Thanks for having me.